Welcome back to another week of Brainwaves. Jim Siegler here, and today on the show, the obvious and not-so-obvious relationship between sickle cell anemia and stroke. The obvious relationship is that sickle cell disease causes stroke, and frequently. In fact, 1 in 10 children with homozygous mutations for sickle cell experience a cerebral infarction before college. The not-so-obvious relationship? Well, you'll just have to wait to find out. And to shed light on this, I'm going to phone a friend, someone I've known since medical school, who's currently a neurology resident at Emory in Atlanta. Welcome to the show, Dr. Erica Jones. Hi! What's up? So good to see you. So, this podcast thing. Yeah, how's this going to work? Just you talking and me talking. <laughs> Great. I've got this horrible Arkansan Southern drawl, and I slur my words, and... It's uh, okay, we can be Southern together! Yeah. <laughs> Two of us. Do it. Perfect. All right, let's start simple. What do we know about stroke risk among patients with sickle cell disease? So to give a little bit of, of background, you know, sickle cell disease is, is a group of hemoglobin disorders that mostly affects people from sub-Saharan Africa and India or the Mediterranean area. And in the United States alone, we have about 100,000 people with sickle cell disease. People with sickle cell anemia inherit this particular mutated beta-globin S gene from both parents, which is what results in this dysfunctional hemoglobin molecule, which distorts the shape of red blood cells. So these red blood cells have a shorter lifespan than the usual healthy red cells, and this causes a chronic anemia and some complications from that. The cells also have a tendency to stick to each other and also to the walls of blood vessels. So this causes these vaso-occlusive crises that often bring these patients into the hospital. The vaso-occlusive crises mostly affect the small vessels, but can also affect large vessels, such as the internal carotids, the circle of Willis, which increases the risk for stroke. Stroke occurs, like Jim said, up to about 10% of children with sickle cell disease, but another 17 to 27% can also have these things that we call silent infarcts, which may not show the very obvious or overt symptoms of stroke, like weakness or speech difficulty that we're used to seeing, but can cause more subtle findings like word finding difficulty and problems with concentration and what some neurologists call bradyphrenia. It's also important here to recognize that there are many neurologic complications of sickle cell disease that change with time. So a lot of these young people require chronic opiates for pain control, which are addictive and lead to overdose and withdrawal problems. And many patients require frequent red blood cell transfusions in order to prevent ischemic stroke, as we'll discuss later. Before, we standardized the screening of blood donors for HIV, which was in 1985, and Hep C in 1990, along with some other infectious diseases. You can imagine these patients with sickle cell disease were at a higher risk of complications from these chronic transfusions. But we are seeing that less and less these days because there's a cure for HCV and there are uh, ARVs for HIV treatment, um, and those are increasingly effective. One last point to, to make here on this is that the risk of ischemic stroke is highest among these younger patients with sickle cell, um, especially under the age of 20. After 30 or 40 years of age, sickle cell and the associated Moya-Moya syndrome, which we'll also discuss later, puts these patients at a higher risk of hemorrhagic stroke rather than the ischemic stroke. And you're mentioning this because for the most part, you're talking about patients who have the homozygous mutation for sickle cell disease. Do we have to worry about strokes in patients with related hemoglobinopathies, such as HBSC disease or thalassemia? 
Yeah. So, um, you know, there's hemoglobin C, which is a different mutation than the beta globin mutation that we see in, in the sickle cell disease that I was just talking about. And it's about like a quarter as common as hemoglobin S among African-Americans, particularly. And the hemoglobin SC disease, as it's called, is what means being heterozygous. So where you've inherited hemoglobin S from one parent and hemoglobin C from another parent rather than being homozygous, inheriting both hemoglobin S from, um, from both parents is often considered to be a, a milder variant of sickle cell disease. So for instance, the stroke prevalence is about 4% in this hemoglobin SC disease. Um, that's significantly less than what we see in hemoglobin SS, which was, as I said earlier, about 10%. And the rate of silent infarction for these patients may be around 3%, um, 3% which is compared to the 17 to 20-something percent that we saw in the, the hemoglobin SS disease. There's also sickle cell beta thalassemia, which is patients who inherit one hemoglobin S from one parent and beta thalassemia, which is a decreased or absent beta globin from the other parent. And they can have varying severity of disease based on how much of that effective beta globin that they can make. So patients with hemoglobin S and absent beta-globin production, which is like a, a beta zero, they behave a lot like a hemoglobin SS um, or traditional sickle cell patient, and they can have higher rates of stroke. And depending on the amount of beta-globin they produce, they may also require transfusions to keep that fetal hemoglobin elevated and prevent future strokes. And regarding the strokes, we always think about sickle cell crisis with small vessel infarcts and large vessel watershed infarcts via moya-moya, which is most common as the principal mechanisms. How else does sickle cell disease put these patients at risk of stroke? So moya-moya is really interesting. Um, the exact pathology of moya-moya is still not really well understood, but it's thought to be due to abnormal thickening or thinning of layers of the vessel walls, um, as well as a compensatory angiogenesis process. One theory is that the endothelium um, of the vessels actually becomes more proliferative in segments of the blood vessels subject to turbulent flow. So for instance, the superclinoid segment of the internal carotid artery, which emerges from that winding feature segment. Um, it's also thought that the anemia that comes from sickle cell disease and increased cerebral blood flow in sickle cell patients exacerbates this development of these, um, this type of endothelium leading to the stenosis and progressive occlusion of these vessels. The red cell to red cell adhesion um, that we also see in sickle cell results in a relative hypercoagulable state that should be considered in young patients with a concerning family history, and this mechanism is more likely to explain small vessel strokes. There are also less common causes of stroke in sickle cell, um, such as fat embolization after bone marrow infarct or venous sinus thrombosis, since sickle cell patients can have increased rates of cardiomegaly, theoretically they could be at risk for cardioembolic strokes from mural or auricular thrombi, but cardioembolic stroke seems to affect adults with sickle cell rather than children and may be more of an independent risk factor for stroke unrelated to their sickle cell disease. And going back to the moya moya vasculopathy, once you've recognized that your patient has moya moya, what are the long-term complications of it? So unfortunately, moya-moya tends to be progressive and preferentially affects the anterior circulation. So at least these really large territory strokes or, or watershed infarcts due to hypoperfusion. Hemorrhagic strokes become more common in sickle cell patients as they become adults, as I mentioned earlier. And it's thought to be due to the fragility of those collateral vessels that form as a part of moya-moya or even aneurysms caused by the abnormal circulation. 
So treatment is indicated when there are clinical signs of decreased blood flow, such as stroke, TIA, or cognitive decline. Many patients with Moya-Moya are started on daily aspirin therapy, but there actually hasn't been a lot of strong evidence for its efficacy in preventing stroke. There are two types of surgical interventions that are available for revascularization in these Moya-Moya patients. So there's direct revascularization, which involves connecting a branch of the external carotid the superior temporal artery particularly, to the middle cerebral artery, and it's used more in adults. So this method, the STA-MCA bypass, was historically used in the acute setting when the brain had been at greatest risk of ischemia, but the complications of hemorrhage make it less appealing to surgeons now. There's also indirect uh, revascularization, which involves a peel synangiosis, whereby a surgeon connects a tissue supplied by ECA branches or the ECA itself to the dura of the brain in order to promote angiogenesis. So the indirect method can take weeks to months in order to effectively vascularize that hypoperfused anterior circulation, but it carries less risk um, of hemorrhage than the direct bypass process. And besides these surgical interventions, as far as treatment goes, meaning treatment for the prevention of recurrent strokes in patients with sickle cell disease, current guidelines call for routine exchange transfusions. What should neurologists know about the long-term management of patients with sickle cell and prior stroke? So there's a select population of sickle cell patients who benefit from exchange transfusions. And that comes from, there was a trial, the STOP1 trial in the 90s, determined that children with high TCD velocities, which was defined as greater than 200 centimeters per second, had previously been found to be at significantly higher risk for stroke, had a reduced stroke risk from chronic blood transfusions every three to four weeks. So the chronic blood transfusion improved the TCD velocities, but was complicated by transfusion reactions, alloimmunization, and iron overload. In addition, there have been a small risk of HIV, HCV, West Nile transmission with repeated transfusions, and even today some infections may be acquired from screen donors. As far as iron overload goes, um, we use iron chelating agents like X-Jade, in patients requiring frequent transfusions, but it carries a risk of growth retardation in young patients as well as renal failure, liver failure, and gastrointestinal bleeding. So in an attempt to prevent the complications of chronic transfusion, the STOP2 trial evaluated the risk of stroke once chronic transfusion therapy was discontinued. So among the patients randomized to discontinuation of red blood cell transfusion, over a third of patients reverted back to having high TCD velocities at a mean of about four and a half months after that. So, and a, and a small percentage of these patients even develop cerebral infarcts in that time. So in contrast, patients randomized to the group um, where they continued getting their transfusions, they did not experience either of those, not the increase in TCD velocities nor strokes during the study period. So because of these results, we feel patients should likely continue to receive transfusions chronically once the TCD velocity threshold is reached. Then there's hydroxyurea, which increases fetal hemoglobin and has also been shown to decrease velocities on TCDs in sickle cell patients. However, the SWITCH trial, which compared sickle cell patients with prior stroke treated with transfusions and iron chelation against patients switched from this standard to hydroxyurea and phlebotomy, despite ending early, the prelim results clearly indicated that changing patients on chronic transfusion to hydroxyurea and phlebotomy carried an increased risk of recurrent stroke. So it was 10% versus zero compared to continuing transfusions. So for those sickle cell patients who have had a prior stroke, hydroxyurea does decrease the rate of stroke recurrence compared to patients whose chronic transfusions have been discontinued without further treatment. But it is still not quite as effective as continuation of transfusion therapy. 
Okay, so that was a lot of information and a lot of trial names that I can't say that I would expect any listener to remember, <laughs> but let me just try to distill it down. So patients with sickle cell disease who have elevated transcranial Doppler velocities of their internal carotid artery greater than 200 centimeters per second, these patients have a lower risk of future stroke and can actually reverse that high velocity state in their ICAs with exchange transfusions. And actually stopping the transfusion will increase the likelihood of reverting back to high velocities in a third of patients. So you should just continue the exchange transfusions regardless of, of how they perform. And then the complications that you worry about are, you know, iron overload. And for patients who cannot tolerate the exchange transfusions due to complications of iron overload, that's when you might put somebody on hydroxyurea or aspirin monotherapy or some other form of, uh, you know, intervention. Yeah, okay. That's basically it? Yeah. Okay, cool. Now let's say you have a patient who's acutely symptomatic. They're actively experiencing a stroke now. Is sickle cell disease a contraindication to IVTPA, to endovascular rescue or anticoagulation and stroke prevention? So no, when patients present with acute ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke, the most um, important acute treatment is red blood cell transfusion with a hemoglobin goal of 10. Um, and this should be done emergently while a, a head CT is being ordered. Exchange transfusion is ideal, but if it can't be arranged right away, simple transfusion is also recommended. Otherwise, these patients should be treated like any other stroke. TPA should still be considered in adults with sickle cell. Secondary stroke prevention with antiplatelets and statins can also be given like any other patient. There's no evidence to suggest that these patients don't warrant a complete workup, the same as you would with any other patient that presents with a stroke. EKGs may actually be particularly important in these patients presenting with symptoms like acute chest, along with getting echo, lipid panel, hemoglobin A1C should be checked. Um, anticoagulation is risky due to bleeding risk as well, but can still be indicated in arterial dissection and venous sinus thrombosis, just like any other patient. There's not much evidence for the use of endovascular intervention in patients where the stroke is thought to be due to a vasoocclusive event. And right now we're evaluating these patients on a case-by-case -case basis and considering them eligible for intervention if their imaging supports it. What is the present and future state of hematopoietic stem cell transplantation in sickle cell disease? And what other future interventions are being considered in sickle cell patients for the prevention of stroke? So I think the future of sickle cell is actually looking pretty exciting. Um, there are more and more studies coming out in support of stem cell transplant as an effective cure for sickle cell patients. Current research is focusing on decreasing risk of graft-versus-host and um, complications of transplant to make this treatment safer and more available. Some possible future therapies they're considering are focusing on targeting inflammation mediators, coagulation pathways, and the sequela of hemolysis. The latest research for sickle cell treatment centers on gene therapy as well to increase fetal hemoglobin production by a knockout of a gene that normally turns off its production. So there's some really interesting things happening there, but human trials haven't started yet. So this is definitely an area where research is very active and we can hope for better treatment modalities in the future. It's, I think, an important issue because sickle cell affects so many people and, it's, and these strokes are impacting the lives of very, very young patients, um, causing a lot of long-term disability. Mm -hmm. 
Well, this has certainly been an incredible review on the relationship between sickle cell and cerebrovascular disease. But there are other neurologic complications of sickle cell that have nothing to do with stroke or hemorrhage, some of the things we kind of talked about earlier. Um, and stroke mimics like migraines and re-expression of prior stroke symptoms in the setting of an infection or metabolic derangements are possible. Another thing to always be aware of, especially for patients who are on chronic opioids, is the possibility of opioid overdose. So lots of things to consider here. Anyway, it's been great chatting with you, Erica. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you for having me, Jim. I always love to work with you and love talking about my favorite topic. Stroke. Stroke. (laughs) Again, that was Dr. Erica Jones from Emory University in Atlanta. For more information on sickle cell disease, neuroimaging features, and guidelines for management, check out our website at brainwaves.me. I'm Jim Siegler. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Brainwaves today. If you like what you just heard, you can find more related material on the web at brainwaves.me or find us on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio. Feel free to contact us at bweditorialboard at gmail.com. Be sure to check out our iTunes archive for older episodes. This episode was produced by Jim Siegler. Music by Ars Sonor, Josh Woodward, Kevin McLeod, I'm Erica Mejia. Join us next time for another edition of Brainwaves.